You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. John chapter 15. You found your place. Let's bow our heads before we begin. Our gracious Father, we delight in your worship and we delight in knowing you. And we thank you that you have made yourself known to us in the pages of Scripture. Incline our hearts to your word and incline our hearts to obedience to your word. May your word dwell within us and continue to produce the fruit of righteousness in our lives. That you might be glorified in and through your church and in the lives of your people. That is our desire. We pray that you would do a work toward accomplishing that desire this morning. May you be glorified through the preaching of your word as we delight in hearing it, as we delight in reading it, and we delight in meditating upon it. So incline our hearts to it and give us grace today to that we might rightly understand it and appropriate it and apply it to our lives. We ask this in the name of your great Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. John chapter 15, we're going to read together verses 1 through 11. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, so that your joy, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Now, this passage is filled with encouragements and, and the blessings that are promised to the abiding branches, those branches that are pruned so that they may bear more fruit. They're not cut off. They're not severed from the vine. Um, those branches are given all sorts of promises and blessings in this passage. And this whole upper room discourse has been filled with encouragements and reminders of blessings and promises that the Lord gave to his disciples on this final night. And it is sad that this passage, the vine and the branches analogy, is sometimes uh, misused, and I would even say it is abused, and used to teach that Christians can lose their salvation. That it is possible for those Christians who do not produce enough fruit to be cut off and to finally perish. And that is how some people take the passage. That's how some people misuse the passage. And they would see that the, that they would argue that the fruitless branches are actual genuine Christians who at one time are saved, but then because of of uh, some lack of grace or some lack of continuing in that grace that they have been cut off. So they would hear this entire passage as Jesus warning his disciples and saying to them, in essence, if you don't continue, and if you don't cling tight enough to me, and if you don't keep yourself in my favor, and if you don't do enough activities and works to continue to abide and stay in me, I'm going to cut you off, I'm going to throw you away, I'm going to cast you into everlasting fire, so you better stay in me. That's how some people kind of view the past. Now, they would never say it like that. 
And they would say something like, hey, if we don't continue to abide, the Lord will cut us off and, and we will finally perish. I think that such an understanding of this passage really is, is completely out of keeping with the entire tone and the tenor of everything that went on there that evening. Remember, this is Jesus' final evening with his disciples. He has told them that there was a traitor in their midst. He has told them that he is leaving them and that they cannot go where he is going. He is, he is departing, he's leaving, he's going away. They will come later, but they are not going to come anytime soon. And he's told them that, that they're going to be all alone, but that he is going to leave them the Holy Spirit to be with them, and he will be with them forever. And Jesus knew that the disciples were made anxious by this, this sudden realization that Jesus was leaving. This at least it sort of shocked him as if this were news to them, although he had been telling them for some months already that the Son of Man would go to Jerusalem, be crucified, and die, be buried, and rise again, uh, that this was going to happen. Though they, they didn't seem to understand that this was now, and now the time is getting close, the hour of his crucifixion is near, and he is telling them, I'm going, I'm leaving. And they became anxious over that. They were disturbed. Their souls, their spirits were troubled. That's why at the beginning of chapter 14, verse 1, Jesus said to them, do not let your heart be troubled. Again, in chapter 27 of chapter, uh, sorry, verse 27 of chapter 14, Jesus told them, do not let your heart be troubled. He is trying to calm them and everything that he tells them in chapters 14, 15, and 16 is intended to calm their fears. It is intended to, to sturdy and steady their hearts and to give strength to their wobbly knees. So it's entirely out of keeping with the context to think that Jesus now, after trying to encourage them with troubled hearts, would suddenly be threatening them rather than encouraging them. There is a warning in this passage for those who are disobedient, who do not produce fruit, who are not actual branches on the vine, but they're just clingers on. They're pretenders. They're fake disciples. There's a warning here towards them. But to the true branches, those of us who are in Christ, we remain. And that is encouraging. This whole passage really is about the security of those who are vitally connected to the vine. They have that life. They bear that fruit. They do not need to be fear being cut off and taken away like Judas was. For they will remain and they will be pruned. So now we come to verse 7 through 11. And uh, we have already looked at what it means to abide. We've looked at who these branches are, who the players are in the analogy. We've answered the question of what is the fruit that is being described here this evening? What is the intention of what Jesus is, is teaching and now we come to verses 7 through 11, and uh, we read that at the very end. There are four, four blessings in, in this, these final verses. The, the, whole, the whole tenor of chapters 14 through 16, remember, is blessing and encouragement and confidence to sort, of, to sort of calm their fears and to relieve the anxiety of their hearts. And chapter 15, and this passage of the vine and the branches is intended to do the very same thing, to calm their fears and to alleviate the anxiety of their hearts and to, to get them to focus on what he was, who he is and what he has done and what he has promised them. So there are four blessings promised to the abiding branch in verses 7 through 11. The first one is in verse 7, and that is that an abiding branch, one of the blessings that we have is answered prayer. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. In verse 8, abundant fruitfulness. My Father is glorified by this that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. In verses 9 and 10, it is an awareness of his love. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And then the fourth blessing is in verse 11, and that is abounding joy. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Answered prayer, abundant fruitfulness, an awareness of love, and abounding joy. These are four of the blessings that are given to the abiding branch. We're going to be able to work our way through verses 7 all the way through verse 11. No part 1, part 2, part 3, part 4, and part 6 of this section, as in weeks past. We're going to get through all these verses because 
for two reasons. We have already done all the groundwork so that we understand who this is addressing and what it is intended to convey. We've taken the time to do that. And second, many of these things we have already addressed back in chapter 14. Being loved by the Father, obeying the commandments, answered prayer. These are all things that came in chapter 14, and so a lot of this is repeated, and it doesn't need a lot of explanation. It just kind of needs a refresher for us to meditate upon these things and to sort of incorporate them into our lives and our thinking and to be reminded that these are blessings that He has promised to us, to the disciples, to the apostles, and to us. He promised them in chapter 14. He's reiterating some of those again in chapter 15. So let's begin with the promise of answered prayer in verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Does that sound like a little bit of a blank check to you? It does, right? Ask whatever you wish. Like a genie in a bottle type of whatever I wish? I get three of these. Do I get an infinite number of these? I can ask anything that my heart desires and has He promised to give me anything that my heart desires? It sounds like a bit of a blank check. It's not a blank check, and I don't want to take away from the seriousness and the profundity of this promise, but I do want to say it is not to be used in the sense that a prosperity preacher would use this verse or that uh, people have abused this verse. You just ask God for whatever you want, and He has promised to give you the desires of your heart no matter what they are. That would be to abuse the passage, and I, I want to add that there are some qualifications to this that are right here in the text. We need to understand what those qualifications are, and I don't mean to underplay it. I'm not going to try and explain this away and say, well, now Jesus really didn't mean ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. It sounds like a promise, but it's really not a promise. So you shouldn't have any confidence in prayer whatsoever. I don't want to do that. That would be to fall on the other side of the ditch. But there are some parameters here that are in place and we need to, we need to look at those. I would remind you this is the second or the third? No, really, I am prepared. This is the second of four times in this discourse that Jesus mentions prayer and gives promises relating to prayer. The first one was back in chapter 14, and I just want you, I'm going to read all four of them because they all sound very similar, and I want you to hear all four of them. Chapter 14, verse 13 and 14. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And then there's this one in chapter 15, verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. The next one is in chapter 15, verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give you. Just whatever. Chapter 16, verse 23. In that day, you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. And one thing that all four of those passages have in common is that sort of blank check sounding promise. That if you ask anything that your heart desires, anything that you want whatsoever, that God will give that to you. Back in chapter 14, when we looked at verses 13 and 14, we saw that there is one qualification there that stands out. Jesus said, if you ask anything in my name. And I I just want to remind you of what the, the conditions on that promise were. What does it mean to ask for something in the name of Christ? One thing that it does mean, and we looked at this back in chapter 14, is it means that when I come to the Lord in prayer, I am coming not on my own merits, but on the merits of another, namely Jesus Christ. I recognize when I step into God's presence to pray, before I have ever uttered a word, I have no right to be there. None whatsoever. God is not, if it were just Jim Osmond, God is not delighted that Jim Osmond would show up in His presence. Not the least. I have no right to be in His presence. The only thing that grants me access to His presence is the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And what Christ has done on the cross 
has granted us access to the throne of grace. So that when I come to the Father in the name of the Son, I am coming in His merits, in His stead. I am coming to the Father not because I have any right to address Him or any access to Him whatsoever in myself, but only because of the of what somebody else has done in my stead that I might come and have an audience with the Father. So to come in the name of the Son is to come in the merits of the Son and to recognize I have no merits before Him. So I am coming because of what Christ has done. Not because I am spanky and because you love to see me show up, but because of what Christ has done for me and He has commanded me now to come in and have access and audience with the Father. It also means to come in Christ's name. It also means that we ask what is consistent with the will of the Father. Since the will of the Son and the will of the Father are identical, they can't will two different things and be at conflict with one another. To come in the merits of the Son is to come and to recognize that what I am asking, I am intending to ask according to the will of the Father. Since I am asking in the name of Christ, I can't ask something contrary to God's will and think that just because I have tacked in Jesus' name on the end of my prayer, that that suddenly is like a postage stamp that guarantees that it's going to arrive at the gates of heaven and that God will be obligated to answer it. When I, when I come to the Father and I ask something in Christ's name, I'm asking for that which is in accordance with the will of the Father and the will of the Son. It would be the same as saying, Grant this, Father, for I believe it to be your will for me and your will for your church. And so I'm asking you to grant it on, with that condition. So it means to come in the name of the Son. Not only that we come in the merits of another and that we are asking according to the will of another, but that we are also seeking the glory of another. What was Christ seeking? He, he sought the glory of the Father. So when I ask in the name of the Son, I am saying, I want the same thing that the Son wants. And since everything Jesus did was for the glory of the Father, everything that I am seeking is also for the glory of the Father. And this really is the essence of true biblical Christian prayer. It is not us trying to bend God's will and to change His mind regarding something to convince Him that our way is better and that we have a really good idea of how He should handle this situation. That's not prayer. Prayer is me coming to Him and trying to align my will with His and to make to change me. Prayer changes me. It doesn't change God's mind. So true prayer is coming in the name of Christ and saying, what are God's priorities? What are God's ambitions? What is God's program? And I want to ask for that thing which pleases Him, which is according with, to His will, which would be most for His glory, not necessarily my own advancement and my own glory, but most for the glory of God, and I want to do it in the merits of Jesus Christ. That's true biblical prayer. Sometimes we have an idea of prayer that we just ask whatever we want. We tack in Jesus' name on the end of it, and suddenly that's the magic formula that obligates God to answer. And that is not at all how it works. That's why Jesus said in chapter 14, if you ask according to my will, in my name, in my merits, then I will do this so that the Father may be glorified. Well, there are other conditions here in this promise in chapter 15, verse 7. Notice the first condition. If you abide in me, if you abide in me. Now, who are the ones who abide? Believers or unbelievers? There's only two, two groups of people in this, this, in this analogy. If you abide in me, there are the abiding branches and the non-abiding branches. There are the believing branches and the non-believing branches. There are the branches who have life and produce fruit and remain attached to the vine. And then there are the branches who are not attached to the vine. They do not produce fruit. They're not really alive at all. They are pretenders. They're Judas branches. Who are the abiders? They're Christians. So that's the very first qualification. This is not for unbelievers. This promise is not at all for unbelievers. God has not obligated Himself to answer the prayers of unbelievers. He answers the prayers of Christians. 
This promise is for those who remain and abide in the Son and have life from Him and produce fruit and continue in Him. This is not for the Judas branches. This is for the true, genuine Christians, uh, not non-Christians. Does God answer the prayers of unbelievers? He does not. You know why He does not? They have no access to the throne of grace. Does that mean that God does not know what an unbeliever asks for? Of course, He knows what an unbeliever asks for. But that unbeliever has no standing before God. That unbeliever is hostile toward God, an enemy of God in his mind through wicked works. He is in darkness. He cannot ask according to the will of God. He cannot ask seeking the glory of God. He cannot ask with right motives. He cannot even understand what the will of God is so that he might ask it. And he cannot ask it in the merits of Christ because he doesn't stand or approach God in the merits of Christ. He can only approach God in his own merits. He has no footing and no standing to make any request whatsoever, however small, before the throne of God. But does God seem to answer the prayers of unbelievers? Do unbelievers, to put it this way, does, do unbelievers ask for things and then apparently get them from God? That does happen, doesn't it? At least it appears so. But even in that instance, I would argue it is not God answering the prayers of the unbeliever. Sometimes unbelievers ask for something that God was going to do anyway. And so the unbeliever asks, and this was the plan of God, that this should unfold just as it is. And the unbeliever happens to, at that time, ask for something that God does will to happen and God is going to do anyway. Or it might be that the unbeliever is asking for something that a Christian is asking for, and God is answering the, the prayer of the Christian, not the non-Christian, and that in doing that, the non-Christian thinks that his prayers are being answered. God does not hear in, in, in the sense of answering or considering and having a standing like you and I have. God does not hear the prayers of an unbeliever. They can ask for things that they seem to get. They might ask for things that a Christian is asking for, and God is answering the prayer of a Christian in, in those things. But an unbeliever has no standing. And just because the unbeliever puts in Jesus' name behind the prayer, doesn't give it any standing whatsoever. No standing. It is only by repentance and faith and what Christ has done that we come to Him in His name. So the very first qualification or condition is that this is for the branches who abide. There's a second one. Not only if you abide in me, but if my words abide in you, verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. Now what does the word abide mean there? Remain and continue. I see, this is one of those, this is one of those verses in this passage where if, if you think that abiding is some work or system of works that you do to keep yourself in God's favor, some list of spiritual disciplines, then what does it mean for the word to abide in you? Does the word have some list of spiritual disciplines that it does as well? No, the, the sense is, if you remain in me, which believers do, we know that to be true, believers do remain, it's a permanent abode, and if my word remains and abides inside of you. Now it is possible for a Christian to not have the Word of God abiding in them. But it is not possible for a Christian to not abide in Jesus Christ. We can abide in Jesus Christ without His words having any place in us in the sense of His Word does not inform us and affect our lives and sanctify us in the truth. There are plenty of people who are new believers or even been believers for a period of time that the Word of God just does not control them like we wish that it would or like it should by that time in their Christian life. So, if we abide in Him and His words remain and abide in us, then we ask whatever it is that we want and the Father will do that. What does it mean for His word to abide in us? His word remains in us. Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, Let the word of Christ dwell richly within you with all wisdom and teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to the Lord. We let the word of Christ dwell richly within us to abide and continue in us. How does that happen? It happens when we 
read the truth, we read His Word, we listen to His Word taught, we listen to His Word preached, we meditate upon Scripture, and the goal is that God's Word may get into our minds and into our hearts, and that we would be sanctified by the truth, ultimately so that everything in us is controlled and governed and directed by Scripture. That's a tall order, isn't it? That all of my thinking may be biblical. That all of my affections would be biblical. That all of my motives, my intentions, my priorities, my desire, my actions might be informed by Scripture. And here's what happens. When all of, when Scripture dwells within us as it should, guess what it does to our desires and our affections? They're changed. Suddenly, I don't want this, but when the Word of God is controlling me, I want different things than what I want when the Word of God is not controlling me. So when the Word of God abides in me and has, it's doing its work in my heart, I am changed so that I come to a point where I am asking for the things that God desires. His priorities become my priorities. His glory becomes that which I seek. I start to seek and desire the same things that God desires. And when I do that, I begin to pray for the same things that God desires and the things that God wants to do. And what's happening? What's happening is what I described earlier. Our will and our affections and our lives are being bent to be in accordance with God's will. Charles Spurgeon describes such a man this way, the divine grace that is within his soul thrusts down all covetous lusting and foul desires and his will is the actual shadow of God's will. That's right. God's word, God's priorities thrust down all covetous and wrong desires and lusts so that what we desire is what God desires. And when my will is in conformity with God's will, then guess what? I can ask anything I want. You say anything you want? Anything you want. Why? Because what you want will be right if God's Word dwells within you. Do you understand how that works? What I want will be what God wants and what God desires and what God is going to do. And my, my thinking, my affections, my motives, my priorities, everything is governed by Scripture. That's the point I want to get to. So that what I'm asking for is what He desires most. And I know what He desires because His Word tells me. And then I can ask anything my heart desires. Because then everything my heart desires will be the things that please God. That's the promise. That's a profound promise. But it's, it's not a blanket promise to unbelievers. It's not a blanket promise to Christians who live, who live carnal and sinful lives and, and do not take uh, Scripture seriously or with any kind of priority in their lives. This is a promise to us that we should strive to get to that point where the Word of God dwells richly within us. We know that we abide in the vine. We want the life of the vine to abide in us and His Word to abide in us so that it changes our hearts and affections and then we can ask what we desire what we desire, and God will do it. Now look at the second blessing. Not only answered prayer, but second. Abundant fruitfulness. Verse 8. My Father is glorified by this that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. The glory of God is the one thing that Jesus that Jesus sought and aimed for in all of His life and ministry. Everything the Son did was so that the Father may be glorified. All the works that He did, all the words that He spoke were the Father's words so that the, the, the character, the attributes of the Father would be manifested through Him and the Father would be glorified. That's what the Son aimed for. And likewise, that is what we are to aim for. 1 Corinthians 6.20, For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. 1 Corinthians 10.31, Whether then you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. This is the most, this is the most pressing concern of a believer that I want to live for the glory of God. And quite frankly, to live life for anything less is to waste your life. Because guess what? The only thing that will matter at the end of time will be the glory of God. Was God glorified? Right? Was, if my life is spent 
seeking and pursuing His glory and the manifestation of His attributes and His goodness and His character, if that is what I am pursuing, then that is a life well lived. A life spent pursuing lesser things is a life spent pursuing things that will be burned up with fire and that will not last for all of time, let alone eternity. The best life to be lived is a life lived for the glory of God. How is God glorified? God is glorified through answered prayer. We saw this in verse 7. Notice the connection here in verse 8 with the glory of God, or the Father being glorified, and verse 7 with the promise to answer prayer. Remember back in chapter 14 when Jesus said, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. The Father is the Father seeks to answer the prayers of His people so that He might be glorified. Do you think that God answers prayers begrudgingly? Do you think that He answers prayers begrudgingly? Do you sometimes approach God, as I, I find myself sometimes doing, approaching God with the mindset, at least the, the haunting cloud over my mind, that God is only going to answer these prayers quite begrudgingly? What does God seek more than anything else? The display of His own glory. That is the best and highest thing for His people, for His church, and for His namesake. And since God is the greatest being, and since His glory and the display of His glory is the greatest thing for all of His creation, the one thing God seeks to do most, because it is the best thing for us and for Him, is the display of His own attributes and His own glory. Now, if God is pursuing the display of His own glory... And if it glorifies the Father to answer the prayers of His people, then do you still think that God answers prayers begrudgingly? Does it not make sense that the thing that the Father would desire to do is to hear our prayers and to have them prayers that are according to His will so that He might answer them and display His attributes and manifest His glory so that He could be glorified? God is glorified through answers prayer. God is glorified through abundant fruit. Verse 8, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. This is the goal of the vine dresser to prune us so that we might bear more fruit, to make us more fruitful. He prunes us by His Word. He prunes us sometimes through suffering accompanied with His Word. It is always the sanctifying work of the Word of God and the Spirit of God and the life of Christ in us that prunes us and cleanses us from sin. He does this so that we might bear more fruit. And the Father is glorified when we bear this fruit and when we manifest those character qualities that we looked at last week. When we display compassion and gratitude and thankfulness and, uh, and generosity and grace and faithfulness, and joy, and love, and peace, and long-suffering, when we manifest those things in our lives, and that, that fruit is hanging off the lives of Christians, the Father is glorified by that. And the more fruit like that He produces in us, the more glory redounds to His name, because the more His work is seen in our lives. That is why we pursue fruitfulness. That's why we should pursue and desire the things that bring God glory and to see these fruits manifested in our lives and never resist the knife of the vine dresser and never resist His Word so that these fruits might be manifested in us. And Peter says, when these things abound on you and they are in your life, you will be neither useless nor unfruitful in the knowledge of Christ. When those fruits hang off of us, God is glorified by that. And God's desire is to produce more and more of that fruit in our lives. He's glorified by answered prayer. He's glorified by abundant fruitfulness. He is glorified when we prove to be His disciples. The end of verse 8. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Fruitfulness is one of those ways that the, the evidence of our discipleship and our salvation is made manifest, not only to the world, that our light shines before men and people glorify our Father who is in heaven, but the proof of my discipleship is, is my own fruitfulness. It's proof not only to a watching world, but proof to myself as well. There is no greater proof of true salvation than a life that is lived to the glory of God. Catch that. There's no greater proof of your salvation than a life that is lived to the glory and honor of God. 
Because the most natural thing for an unregenerate person to do is to live their entire lives for their own sake and for their own glory. But the most natural thing for a regenerate person to do is to live his life for the glory of God because we have new affections and the Word of Christ dwells richly within us. So, there is no greater proof of my salvation or my discipleship than a life that is lived to the glory of God the Father and of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we prove to be His disciples. What is the evidence of my own conversion as I look at my own life? And you can ask yourself this question. What is the evidence that I am actually saved? It is your fruitfulness. It's one of the things that you can look at. Is there fruit there in your life? It's not about the words that you say. It's not about a profession of faith. It's not about signing a card or coming forward or walking the aisle, no matter how many times you've done that. The proof of my salvation is, is, is there fruit of repentance? Are the fruits that are produced on the vine there? Is the fruit of the Spirit present there? I can look at my own life and say, these things have changed and these things are different and there is fruit being born there. And we will always want to be careful that we don't be too introspective, that we don't look at ourselves and navel gaze and, and get depressed and think, well, I'm not producing enough fruit and I'm not perfect enough because we're not talking about perfection. But we, we shouldn't fall off into one ditch and, and look at ourselves constantly and think that that is the essence of our assurance, but neither should we neglect to look at the fruit and, and just go plowing on with life without any sort of self-examination. Self-examination is good. We need to hold it in balance. I examine myself. I say, okay, there's fruit there. And I want that to grow and increase. And I want to grow in these things. And so I pursue these things and constantly checking up to make sure that that fruit is there and that I'm desiring it. And sometimes it's good to have a, a wife or a spouse who can tell you, look, you need to grow in this fruit. Or all of these fruits and list them off for you. Sometimes that's helpful. But we want to pursue fruitfulness. And one of the ways that we prove ourselves to ourselves that we are disciples, one of the blessings of, of the one of the blessings of God is assurance, and that comes when I can I can look at what the Lord is doing and be encouraged by it. And say, okay, I used to love this and now I don't. Now I hate this and I love this which I used to hate. That's a fruit, and there is genuine fruit of repentance, and there is the fruit of the Holy Spirit that is being born in my life. So that is the fruitfulness. Third, there is a third blessing that comes to those who abide in Christ, and that is an awareness of love in verse nine and ten. Look at verse nine. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Sorry, verse 9. Just as the Father's loved me, I've also loved you. Abide in my love. And then verse 10. Now verse 9, that is a, that is a verse. I just want you to think about that. That is a verse that you, you cannot even explain or get your mind around. Verse 9. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. Just as the Father has loved the Son, what was the love of the Father for the Son like? It was a perfect love. It was an infinite love. It was an eternal love. It was an uncompromising love. It was, it, that, is a, that is a love that... Can, can you possibly get your head around the inter-Trinitarian love? The love of the Father for the Son and the Son for the Father? How, how much does God... How much does the Father love somebody who is a mirror of Himself with all of those perfections and all of those glories as perfect and holy and righteous as the Son was. That perfect and infinite love, that love, that inter-Trinitarian love, as the Father has loved the Son, Jesus said, so I have loved you. You get your mind around that? That I am loved with the same perfect, to the same degree, the same infinite love that exists between the Father and the Son, that is the same love with which the Son has loved me. And so then He says, abide in my love. What does it mean to abide in His love? To remain in His love. Is it possible for me to not remain in His love? Can I slip out of His love? Is there anything that can separate me from the love of Christ, from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus? 
Can death, can persecution, suffering, affliction, height and death, or breath, or any created thing, is there anything in the world that can separate me from His love? Is there anything that can pluck me out of His love so that I'm no longer under that love? Is it possible for the love of the Father for the Son to cease or to diminish? It is not. Neither is it possible for the Son to no longer abide under the Father's love. And so we are commanded here to do something that we are most assured will do. As His people, is it possible for the love of the Son for His bride, the church, to cease or to stop? Is it possible for Him to stop loving one of His sheep? For the Son to not love any longer one of those whom the Father gave to Him in eternity past and committed to Him this salvation. Is that possible? That's not possible. We will abide in His love. That infinite love with which the Father loves, the Son, that love rests upon you if you are in Christ. And it rests upon me. Now you may not know that. You may not feel that at any given time. But that does not change the reality of the love that exists there. And how, how is it that I bask in that love and am made aware of that love? It is through obedience. Look at verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. And we know from back in chapter 14, those who keep his commandments are the ones who love him. They love him and they do his will. Chapter 14, verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Verse 24. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. What is the expression of our love for Christ? It is in obedience. What was the expression of the Son's love for the Father? It was His obedience. Christ obeyed the Father perfectly and did all the Father's will perfectly. That was an expression of the Son's love for the Father. And the Father loves the Son with an infinite love. And the Son loves the Father with an infinite love. And the Son obeyed the Father, which was a demonstration of that love. So how is it that we as Christians abide in, stay in His love? We don't stay in His love by obedience, by obeying His commandments, but obeying His commandments manifests the reality that we do remain and stay in His love. When I disobey Him and I slip and I fall and I do something, however intentional or unintentional, does the love of God for me at that moment cease? It does not. And it's not because, again, I'm all that great, or you are all that great. It is because the love of the Father for the Son extends to and rests upon also the love of all those who are in the Son and attached to the Son, who have the life of the Son in them and bear the image of the Son and are redeemed by the Son and bought by the Son. So the Father doesn't love me because my, my obedience is perfect. The Father loves me because His Son's obedience was perfect. And because the Son's obedience was perfect, the Father's perfect love rests upon me. The Son's perfect love rests upon me. And how is it that I am aware of that love? How is it that I express that love and enjoy that love? By obeying Him. Obeying Him. Show me a disobedient Christian and I will show you somebody who is not at all certain or enjoying the love of Christ for him. But show me a Christian who obeys the Lord in everything and seeks his obedience and I will, uh, seeks obedience to him and I will show you a Christian who enjoys and basks in the reality of the love of God for him because he knows that love. He experiences that love and he's aware of it. It's a mind-boggling promise. Does that mean now does it mean if I am loved by the Son with the same love that the Father loves the Son, that infinite, perfect, and eternal love, does that mean that my life then will be free from difficulty or suffering? Was the life of the Son free from difficulty or suffering? It was not, was it? No. In fact, we're going to see later on in chapter 15, beginning in verse 18 and following, that the Father's love for me is almost a guarantee of suffering. 
Because the world hates those whom the Father loves. His love for me guarantees my affliction. It guarantees it. It's, it's written in stone. It cannot be otherwise. The world will have to hate the one who is loved by the Father. So His love for me does not preserve or protect me from difficulty or suffering or affliction. His love for me guarantees that those things will take place. Guarantees it. Because the world hates those whom the Father loves. But His love rests no less upon the believer who suffers than it does upon the believer who does not suffer. In fact, here's a mind-boggling thought. When Jesus cried out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was no less loved by the Father at that moment than when He came up out of the waters of baptism and the Father said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Because the love of the Father for the Son cannot change. And it does not change. Jesus was no less loved by the Father at any moment of His life than at any other moment of His life. And the believer is no less loved by the Father and the Son in moments of affliction and suffering than when everything is going just swimmingly and everything is great. The love of the Father for His people never changes. It never fluctuates. My experience of it, my realization of it, my awareness of it changes from time to time. But the fault lies with me and my perception and not with the love of God, which is an objective reality. So an awareness of His love. That is the third blessing. And the fourth one is abounding joy in verse 11. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Again, those who take this whole passage and and, and the context and try and make this into some threat that Jesus is giving that threatens the security of the believer, how then do you explain verse 11? If you read the first ten verses as a threat toward Christians that they could at any moment lose their salvation if they don't do enough, what does verse 11 mean? How does this cause joy in the hearts of the disciples? They were intended to to hear these words and bask in the reality of these blessings that were theirs and were guaranteed to be theirs. And this would fill them with joy. And notice two types of joy. His joy which is in them and that their joy may be made full. When His joy and His rejoicing is in us, our joy is made full. Do you think that these things that Jesus spoke to the disciples, His His own understanding of these realities and these truths and His recognition of these truths, Do you think that it caused him great joy? It did cause him great joy. I believe that the heart of Jesus Christ rejoiced at these truths that he's just given to the disciples. All of them. That the Spirit would be with them, that they're guaranteed heaven, that they will remain, that they will be pruned, that they will produce fruit. All of those blessings, all of these truths, caused the heart of Christ to be filled with joy at the prospect of what he has just promised them. And so being aware of these things and understanding them and basking in them, and enjoying these and resting in these promises, our joy is made full as well. His joy is in us because when we come to understand truth the way the Lord Jesus Christ understood truth, and when we come to appreciate and enjoy that truth and rest in it, we are filled with joy. We're filled with joy and our joy is made full. Does it not fill your heart with joy to know that whatever happens in this world and whatever happens with the government and whatever happens in this country and whatever happens with your kids and your grandkids, that most certainly you are assured that He has gone away to prepare a place for you and He will come again and receive you to Himself. If you rest in that, your heart will rejoice in that. And that though He is not here, He has promised those who believe that are His that they have the indwelling Holy Spirit and that is a permanent and abiding reality and that that can never be cut off from us. And does it not fill your heart with joy to realize that you are an abiding branch and that you remain attached to the vine and to see the fruit of God produced in your life, that that is evidence that you belong to Him, and that His promise to you is that you will never be cut off, you will be pruned, so that you might bear more fruit, but you will never be cut off 
from that vine. Does that not cause your heart to leap with joy? It ought to. The soul that trusts Jesus Christ's bare word and rests in what is here is a soul that rests and basks in the joy of Jesus Christ because it sees these truths and these promises for what they really are. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, we thank You that You have promised us so much in the pages of Scripture. You have you have promised to Your people an eternal inheritance and, and all things. You withhold from us no good thing. And we thank You for these promises and, and we ask, Lord, that You would work a work in our hearts that we might be men and women of the truth and of Your Word, that we might delight in Your Word and love Your Word and that Your Word may control us, our every thought, our every motive, our every desire and affection, so that what we think and what we desire and what we pray for might be truly biblical in accordance with Your will. We pray that You would continue to sanctify us by the truth, unite our hearts in love for one another, and unite our hearts in love for the truth. And we pray that You would incline us to Your Word. May we find great joy and rejoicing in these promises and in what You have given to us, even in the midst of a world that is filled with suffering and affliction and in a world that is filled with a hatred for the truth and for the light. May we rejoice in these things, knowing that we belong to You and this world is not our home. Fill us with joy, we pray, and we ask these things because we believe them to be Your will for us. In Christ's name, Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.